0: I have never had to fear going hungry, really going hungry. I've never had to fear violence. I've never had to fear for my life because of my race or my ethnicity. I personally have only lived in places where refrigerators are full and where the rule of law exists, where there is a judge to appeal to and there is protections in place. I have never lived on the edge of survival, nor in total hopelessness of my future. And so in many ways, it's hard to relate to this amazing book of Ruth, and the emptiness, and the vulnerability, and the need that is projected through Ruth and Naomi in this book. The book of Ruth challenges us, especially those of us who have never experienced that, to look at the poor and the widow and the refugee, those who are defenseless and most vulnerable, and to reach out our hands as God's very hands of real generosity and love. Let me open with a prayer as we enter into this today. God, for those of us who live so far from emptiness and fear and violence, Give us hearts to see your love for the weakest. Open us to the love that you have for the poor and the refugee and the widow. And give us the wisdom to step into the love that you want us to share. In Jesus' name, amen. So we just had the story of Ruth read, well, the first chapter. And it's such a great narrative. If, you, if you've not read, it's probably my favorite book of the Bible. And it, it's written like a four-act play, chapter one, two, three, four. It sets up this, this great drama and this great resolution, and it's just a beautifully written and should actually be acted out, not just preached on. But to give you the setup for it, we just had it read in Ruth chapter one, is Naomi and her husband and two sons are in Bethlehem in Israel, and a famine strikes the land. This is the time of the book of Judges, and if you know any bit about the Bible, the book of Judges was a time when the people were godless when they had abandoned God and he was giving them over to their own devices. The famine comes and it's like a judgment on the land. And so Naomi and her husband and two sons flee as refugees to Moab, a nearby but foreign nation. Just the fact that this is recorded in the Bible is putting them in a very um, unsavory light because to leave the land of Israel was to do something shameful by rejecting the land of promise. And it was also incredibly dangerous, because they were putting themselves in the hands of the mercy of the people of Moab, who at various times were enemies, hated peoples for the people of Israel. Naomi and her husband and two sons settle in Moab, and over the course of time, some tragedies strike. First, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Then her two sons, who have grown up and married married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, they also die. And so Naomi is left with nothing. She has two daughters-in-law, but no way of protecting or providing for herself. And so she determines, I have nothing here in Moab. I will return to Israel. In verse 21, which we didn't read, she's already returned to Israel, and she says this to the people in Bethlehem, I went away full. I had everything I needed. I had my husband and my sons. I had everything but I am returning to the land of Israel empty. I went away full. God has brought me back empty, and I am a bitter and sad woman. Once she determines that she's going to leave, she sets out from Moab to go on the journey 50, 100 miles back to Bethlehem, and her two daughters-in-law, who are very faithful, Orpah and Ruth, want to go with her, so they follow her some distance, and Naomi lets this happen uh, for a certain amount of time, but then somewhere along the journey back to Bethlehem, Naomi stops the two girls, the two women, and she says this in verse 8. Go, return each of you to to her mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me, with the dead and with me. Now she says to them, go back to your mother's house. This is a Hebraism that basically means I want you to go back to the, the home you grew up in, to your parents' home, And by that phrase, your mother's home, it's actually implying, and get married again. You guys are both widows, you don't have children, but you're young enough to have children, so go back to your parents' home where you can have the protection of your father and get married again. I release you from following me. In that ancient world, if you did not have a male connection, you were as good as dead as a female. That ancient world, all the status and rights were held by men. Only men could own property, which meant only men could could provide for their families for themselves. So a woman in the ancient world, both the Jewish world and the ancient Near East, needed a father or a husband or a brother or an adult son. If she had none of those, if she had no husband or father or adult son or brother, she was completely helpless. Naomi was there in Moab as a woman who was a foreigner with no husband, no son, no father, no brother. So she had no social status and no legal rights. Basically, if something happened to her, if somebody wanted to take advantage of her or exploit her, there was no one who would argue her case in court because only a man could bring a case to court. If you didn't have somebody committed to you, you had no defense as a woman. And because all provision was provided by land and cattle and you could own nothing, as a woman without land because you had no connection to a husband or a father, you had no way to provide for yourself. A widow who had no father in a foreign land had a few options. She could beg, she could sell herself in slavery, or she could sell herself. Naomi determines to return to Israel because she has no chance of survival in Moab. And she tells Orpah and Ruth, her daughters-in-law, you go back as well because you will have no chance of survival in Israel. But Ruth, one of her daughters-in-law, clings to her. Ruth says this in verse 16 and 17, one of the most beautiful statements in the Bible. Ruth says to her mother-in-law, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And this is a pledge. She's making a promise, a covenant, like a marriage pledge to her mother-in-law. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. You know, we know the end of the story. If you read on in Ruth, we know what happens. And the spoilers, Ruth doesn't die a tragic death here. But at the time that she makes this pledge, Ruth doesn't know that. Death was a very real possibility. Two widows wandering towards Israel with no protections, And Ruth, being a foreigner, had even fewer protections once she entered the land of Israel. She gives herself an absolute dedication and willing self-sacrifice for her mother-in-law, who is a helpless and older and vulnerable widow. You know, what's amazing if you read through the book of Ruth is how much it elevates women and, and the immigrant We kind of gloss over it because we don't think about it as a big deal, but in that ancient world, the fact that this was included in the canon of the Jewish scriptures is absolutely mind-blowing. Ruth is a Moabite. She is a foreigner. She is an enemy of the people of Israel. And in this book, we see her leaving her culture and her home and her family, everything she has ever known in her life, to become a foreigner herself out of love and sacrifice for her mother-in-law. That's incredibly powerful. And basically, the author is elevating her, this foreign widow, saying she is somebody that we want to follow, and she is a part of God's plan. And we see that because she has such profound faith. She is willing to abandon her gods and put her trust in Yahweh, the God of Israel, saying, I'm committed to you, Naomi, I will go where you go because your God is now my God. Her faith supersedes all that you find even in the book of Judges. And so even though she has no hope on her own, she falls on the mercy of Yahweh and hopes and prays that the people of Israel will reflect their God. They end up back in Bethlehem, and then where we didn't read in chapter 2, they end up in Bethlehem, and, and you know what? They're actually hungry. Now, if you, this is something you gloss over, but it says in, in chapter 2 that Ruth goes out to glean in the fields. Which basically means they have to wander for however many days to get back to Bethlehem. And when they get there, they don't actually have food. They don't have a way, you don't just go to the grocery store. They don't have a refrigerator with food in it. And they have no means of making any food. It's unclear how many days they go without food. And Ruth says, I've got to go and glean in the fields. It's harvest time. The idea of gleaning was one that if you haven't heard, it went like this. Israel was commanded when they had their fields to not harvest the entire field. They were supposed to leave the edges of the field, the corners of the field, for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the sojourner or immigrant. Whoever came into their land, their land that was the most vulnerable, those who did not own land themselves, were supposed to be able to follow after your harvesters and pick up anything that fell on the, f- on the ground. So the Lord commanded Israel to allow things to fall to the ground and to not go to the edges. Basically, your field is your field, but do not go over it a second time. Do not take everything away. Leave something behind for the poorest of the poor so that they may glean was the term that was used. So Ruth leaves her mother-in-law who is older and in what is actually an act of complete desperation goes to glean in a foreign field. It's an act of desperation because Ruth is a foreigner in Israel and she has no male protector, no husband or father, no father-in-law, no brother, no adult son. She's stepping into a field where anybody could do whatever they want to her, and she has no protections. Now maybe Ruth knew the Old Testament law, probably better than most of the people of Israel. The Old Testament law provided for protection of the foreigner, of the widow, of the orphan. You were supposed to give them rule of law and provide for them. And in fact, if you guys have been reading along in the reading series that we've been doing on loving the stranger, one of the things that's jumped out to me the past two weeks is how much God emphasizes again and again you cannot have two laws, not one for the Israelite and one for the foreigner, not one for the rich and one for the poor. Basically, whatever the law is, is the law for everyone. So you have justice for everyone, even those who are voiceless. Now, in the Old Testament, a foreigner was separated from the covenant of God. They were not necessarily able to worship, to enjoy the religious connection that the people of God had unless they converted fully, but they were still afforded rule of law and justice protections. In other words, they were not citizens, but they still had to be protected and provided for. Do not deprive them, the Lord says again and again, of the rule of law, of justice, of mercy, of protection, of provision, He gets very explicit in Deuteronomy 10, which if you were reading along in our series, we read just a couple days ago. Deuteronomy 10 says this. It's the Lord addressing himself first. I am the Lord your God, the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribes. In other words, what I'm about to say is on the authority of me, the Lord God. He executes justice for the fatherless, and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. You, therefore, do the same. Love the sojourner, the foreigner dwelling within you, because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You know, I read this week a couple of different comparisons between other ancient Near Eastern laws, like the Sumerian laws, or the laws, the Code of Hammurabi, versus the Old Testament law, And the the descriptions of the differences between those other ancient Near Eastern laws and the one that comes for the people of God in in the Bible is that the ancient Near Eastern laws had a focus on the land and on the economy. All the rules were meant to build up the economy, whereas the primary focus in the Bible, the Old Testament law of Moses, is protection of people over wealth. If your wealth and a person come into conflict, you give up your wealth for the protection of the person. That was not the case in the other ancient Near Eastern law codes. In the ancient Near Eastern law codes, the benefit was always for those of status versus those of poverty. So those who were of higher status could, could inflict even greater punishments on the poor than would be ever inflicted on them. But in the law of God, the law of Moses, it was equal protection. Whether you were a patriarch, a landowner, a prince, or you were the poorest of the poor, an orphan, or a widow, or a sojourner. The law applied equally to both. In the ancient Near Eastern law codes, there was no motivation why you should do this. But the law of Moses was built out of the character of God. Again and again it says, I am the Lord your God. Do these things because this is my heart. It doesn't matter if the rest of the world isn't doing them. This is my heart, follow me. And in Ruth chapter two, Ruth goes out to glean in a field. And in the field that that she gleans in is the field of Boaz. Boaz is a near relative of Naomi and he more than fulfills the law for Ruth. He does four things that we see in chapter two that I'm gonna highlight even though we didn't read it. He speaks to Ruth, he protects Ruth, he blesses her and he feeds her. In chapter 2, verse 8, after she has been working in the fields, gleaning food for herself and for her mother-in-law, Boaz comes out and says, who's this woman? And the the guy who's in charge of the harvest for his field says, oh, that's Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, who's come to protect her. And then it says in verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. He says, Do not glean in another field. He he goes up and, you know, what's amazing about this is that he actually speaks to her. In the ancient world, men did not speak to women they were not related to. He goes up and talks to this foreign woman. And probably based on what she's wearing, he can tell right away she's foreign. And he talks to her. And by doing so, he is acknowledging a woman that has no social status. There is no reason that he, a dignified landowner, a patriarch in the community, should talk to this poor slave of a woman. But in acknowledging her, he's giving her dignity. He's elevating her just in a human sense. You are worth addressing. I will talk to you directly. And he's also elevating her within the wider community. All of those who are working in his field see him talking to her, Sometimes just by stopping to speak, you give dignity to a person. And that's what he does with this woman. And then he provides protection for her that he doesn't need to provide. In verse eight, the second half of it, and on into nine, he says, keep close to my young women. In other words, there are, there are men working in the fields and there are women. I want you to work alongside them as if you work for me. I'm not gonna treat you as a foreigner. I'm gonna treat you as one of my own. And the reason he says this is, in verse 9, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Now the question we should be asking is, did he need to say that to the young men? And what are the implications that he did? So he tells Ruth, I want you to work only in my field. Stay by my women, because I've told the young men, I've commanded them, do not touch her. The implication is, without him commanding them, they were going to touch her. She is a foreign woman with no protector, working in their fields, no one to bring a case if anything should happen to her. Ruth, uh, Naomi, her mother-in-law, says later on, yes, in verse 23, you should only work in his fields lest in another field you be assaulted. It's The same wording, I have commanded the men not to assault you. And Naomi says, yes, stay in his fields lest you go somewhere else. And as would be expected, you as a foreign woman would be assaulted. Because the question is this. If she was assaulted, who would plead Ruth's case in the court of law? And Boaz is promising, I will. I will protect you. Stay with me, and I will plead your case if anything happens to you. He speaks to her, he protects her, and he blesses her. Ruth says to him in verse 10 Why are you being so kind to me since I am a foreigner? I don't deserve this. I've done nothing to deserve this. And Boaz says, I know your commitment to Naomi and how you have appealed to the Lord God Almighty. And then he says a blessing on her, a benediction. He says, may the Lord repay you. This is verse 12. A full reward be given to you by the Lord under whose wing you have sought refuge. You have come here to Israel with no defense and no protection. You've basically thrown yourself on the mercy of the Lord God Almighty. Under his wing you have sought refuge. May God provide for you. May God protect you, provide for you, restore you, and redeem you. He offers this word of spiritual blessing on her that is incredibly powerful, that everyone is hearing, elevating her again. And then lastly, he feeds her. The fourth thing he does is feed her. He says, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And she ate and she was satisfied. We've talked about this before. There is a couple things going on here. One is the simple act of kindness, of providing for her. Naomi went away to Moab full and returns empty. Ruth goes out into the fields with an empty stomach and returns home satisfied, full. She's being fed just on a very basic human level. But in the ancient world, especially in the Jewish context, eating with somebody, eating at their same table, dipping in their same wine cup was covenantal. It was a way of saying you and I are one, we are of the same family, the same community, the same friendship group. Basically, he's declaring in front of anyone who can see all the men and women working in his fields, many of whom would have been the people of Bethlehem, I accept Ruth, she is one of us, you accept her too. The power of that is unbelievable. And the question is this, isn't this exactly what we're called to do for the poor, for the fatherless, for the refugee and immigrant? To speak to them and give them dignity. To protect and feed and provide for and spiritually bless. What Boaz does is our calling as well. So Ruth returns home to Naomi with a basket full of barley maybe even a couple months worth of food. And Naomi Naomi is overwhelmed. Where have you been gleaning? Whose field? Boaz? In verse 20, she says, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. If you go on and read in chapter three and four, this really fun, uh, chaotic stuff begins to happen. A plot is hatched and something unfolds. And ultimately, Boaz commits to be the redeemer of Ruth and Naomi And that word redeemer is actually the word goel. Goel could be redeemer or kinsman redeemer. And there was a technical term for this in the Old Testament whereby if somebody became poor and had to sell their lands, one of their close relatives was supposed to come and buy the land so that they could live in it again so that the land would not depart from the clan from the family name forever. There was another role that the Redeemer played in a type of marriage where if a, if a man died without having a son, his brother was supposed to marry uh, the widow and have sons by her, but the sons would actually be in the line of his brother. Slightly confusing, but the basic idea is this. A Redeemer, a Goel, gave of themselves in order to benefit their family and not necessarily benefit themselves. Boaz commits to doing this. He pays money to purchase Elimelech's fields, the land of Naomi's dead husband, but he will not get to own them forever. He promises also to marry Ruth and have children by her. And the son, if a son is born to Ruth and to Boaz, that son would inherit the land that he had paid for. And on top of that, if Boaz had no other kids, and we don't know if he has children at this point, any son born to Ruth might inherit his land. Basically, at great cost to himself financially and socially, and at risk of his family's future, Boaz, in generosity and love and biblical faithfulness, empties himself. He sacrifices himself. Why? I think it's because He had God's heart for the widow, Naomi, and for the foreigner, Ruth, rather than his own perspective in view. He saw God's heart for them, and he stepped in to fulfill his calling. The book of Ruth is the story of redeemers. In Boaz's blessing in chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz says, May the Lord, under whose wing you have sought refuge, May the Lord under whose wing you have sought refuge provide for you. It's interesting, right? Boaz says, hey Ruth, may God provide for you. You've sought refuge under him. May God protect you. How does God protect Ruth? His blessing and prayer he becomes the fulfillment of. God's redemption for Ruth and Naomi comes through Boaz. Ruth actually acts as a redeemer, a protector for Naomi, and then Boaz, a redeemer for Ruth. And here's what we see in this. God uses people like Boaz, like Ruth, like you and me to bring justice and mercy. When you say, may God protect these people, God says, yes, I want you to protect these people. That's our calling, to be redeemers to the poor and the defenseless to provide for them, to love the refugee and the foreigner. How do we do this? Well, I'm going to actually invite Andrew Seacrest up, who is uh, the church, um, give me the right name, church direct partner director yeah, for you. World Relief. Um, we've had Andrew here before, so Andrew, I'm going to give you a seat. And um, World Relief is one of our um, partners. Go ahead and grab that seat there. One of our mission partners, and over the past couple years, we have, Uh, Committed to them as one of our main mission partners. And I just wanted to ask you a couple questions. Um, Let's pull this closer to you. Hold on, do it this way. There we go. Um, So, Andrew, tell us about yourself and about World Relief, this organization, this mission organization that we have helped support as a church over the past couple of years. What can you tell us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I've just been with World Relief for two years, so I am no expert, um, but uh, World Relief's actually been around for over 70 years now. Um, We started after World War II, actually, um, in response to uh, the devastation um, all over Europe, um, thinking about refugees, thinking about people whose lives have been um, destroyed. That's where we came out of. Um, but, but really, our mission at World Relief is how do we empower the local church? So, so you, how do we empower the local church to be the one that is serving the most vulnerable? Um, we have realized that, that we're a great organization. We, we have you know, some cool t-shirts um, and, and do great work. But at the end of the day, Christ has called His church to be the one that is actually carrying out His mission, and so that's really what um, our, our vision is.
0: And Andrew, I ask you as well to share some of the stories you you guys work directly with displaced peoples, with refugees with those who are forced out of their homes for various reasons. Tell us, give us a little bit more insight into the lives of those who are displaced or any stories that you can to help us to understand a little better.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so part of our work um, here in the U.S., we actually work with the U.S. government as one of the nine uh, official refugee resettlement organizations. Um, but we also work all around the world uh, engaging refugees, and so um, I I could tell so many stories. Um, Just just one, I guess, to put it in perspective. Um, You know, uh, imagine yourself um, on on a day a lot like today, sitting um, in a very nondescript house um, in Ohio. Um, And there's a woman sitting at a table across from you who um, doesn't have a lot in her house. Um, She's um, making you uh, a pot of tea, and uh, you look at her and you begin to ask her about herself. Um, and you realize there's a, there's a lot more to this person um, than would originally catch the eye. Um, uh, her name is Hana, and she's from Iran, and she's now living in Ohio. Um, but as you're, you're sitting across from her, you notice that there is a, a picture on her wall. Um, and in that picture, there are two sons. Um, but as you look around the room, you see there's only one son sitting there with you. Um, as you begin to talk to her, her hands shake. She's looking at you in the face and she begins to tell you a story and she says, um, six years ago when she was living in Iran, her house was raided, um, by the government and, um, her oldest son was, was taken away from her. Um, her house was destroyed and she, um, feared for her life. Um, so she immediately packed up, um, her youngest son and they began a journey, um, And this was a journey that I didn't get a lot of details on because this was a journey that was um, so long and so um, dangerous. Um, But she actually made it from Iran um, to Turkey, which is actually the largest host country of refugees in the world, um, with almost 3 million refugees that Turkey is hosting. She made it to Turkey and lived in a refugee camp for um, almost three years. Um, So just getting by, surviving on meals, not able to work, not able to speak the language. Um, And then in 2015, she was actually able to resettle to the US. Um, She came to Ohio, um, which is where World Relief began working with her. Um, Now her son has since actually been freed from, um, from jail Um, But she doesn't know if she's going to see him again, um, just because uh, right now the U.S. isn't really taking refugees from the Middle East. So he's still over there, um, and she's trying to figure out, hey, how could she get to see him again? Um, She now has a job. Um, She has a small business that she has started, and um, she has huge plans for that. Um, And she has huge plans for her son as well. Um, That's just one one picture, um, a teeny little picture um, of a refugee that we work with, um, I was in, uh, Jordan on the border of Syria last year, and as I sat down with Syrian refugees, they would look at me, you know, with tears in their eyes, um, and they would say, hey, I want, I want you to see something, and they would pull back their shirt, and they would have a chain on with a key to their house, um, and they'd tell me about their house, and I would know from the description, that's, that's in an area that was bombed, um, there's no house there, um, but they wanna go back. Um, These are the stories of people that that we're working with, um, both here in the US and around the world.
0: What, how many different places are you guys working, even just rough estimate, um, different countries or different places where you're finding refugees from, that yeah. sort of thing?
1: Yeah, I, really all around the world. Um, we, uh, we work in about 27 countries, as well as all around um, the U.S. Um, so interestingly enough, the, the three places, three countries, um, actually make up 57% of the world's refugees, um, and that's Syria, um, Afghanistan, and South Sudan. Um, and we're actually uh, working with our workers right in some of these areas. It's, it's pretty incredible, actually. Uh, in South Sudan, there is a, a civil war going on, and we are working with groups of local churches in the southern region. Um, almost every other organization is pulled out. And uh, if you were to look at a map of, of the conflicts, uh, it would all be read all around the country except for two little green dots um, of peace. And these two dots are areas where we're actually working with local South Sudanese churches. We've united them together across denominations um, and they're engaging their communities and bringing peace to the point as when rebel groups have come in, the local pastors have gathered together and said, you will not come. Mm -hmm. And this is just an example of the gospel. It brings peace. And this is the local church that is on the ground right there.
0: What can you tell us as just people here um, about why you think this is part of World Relief's calling and our calling as Christians to care for the refugees and the the displaced and those who are defenseless?
1: Yeah, I could go so many places with that. Um, You know, I I think when I hear that question, my my first response is, if not us, then who's going to do this? Um, We could talk, you know, like you're saying in your sermon, we could talk about economics, we could talk about politics, we could talk about all these different strategies but at the end of the day the local church has a call that comes out of the character of God Um, because at the end of the day we believe that every single person was created in his image and every single person has inherent dignity and beyond that a purpose Um, but you know a a lot of things that that we look at is you know we're called to love um, the Lord our God but we're also called to love our neighbor as ourself Well, when Jesus says that to a group of people, somebody asks him, well, well, who's my neighbor? Well, the story that Jesus tells immediately in response to that question is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, And what we see is that we're called to love people that are not like us. We're called to love people who don't believe the same things as us. Um, These are the types of people we're, we're called to engage Um, another uh, command in scripture is to to practice hospitality, right? This is a a command that is actually, um, you know, if you look in Timothy at the qualifications for church leaders, um, they have to be somebody who practices hospitality. In the Greek, that word is phyloxenia, which means loving the stranger. We're we're called to be people who love the stranger because we were once strangers to God, um, and we've been brought in as well. Um, so I, I could go um, on and on, um, probably preach a sermon on this. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, the church has a local call because we get to relate to people as people. Um, you know, when we work with refugees all around the world, we see people, people are programmed out. They, people don't need another handout. They don't need another program. They need somebody who loves them and who's going to walk alongside them and who's going to look them in the eyes and say, you have dignity and you have a purpose and you have a future.
0: Thank you, Andrew. If you want to hear more about World Relief, Andrew is going to be at a table across from the info table after church and be able to answer questions you might have about their work um, and how you can possibly be involved or find out more, get on their emailing list, um, because it's a great way to understand what God is doing in the world in some of the most Mm -hmm. desperate places. Um, As as Andrew mentioned, you know, the, the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came to rescue and redeem us. And as people who are aliens and foreigners to God, God sent his son to be the foreigner, to be the alien himself. Jesus Christ left his father's home above and took up residence in our world. And he paid at great cost to redeem us, to set us free, to give us life and hope. If your motivation for going to, you know, care for the poor of so the poor is simply guilt, you'll be motivated a little bit. But to the extent that you are filled up by a God who has filled you even though you deserve nothing, by a God who has loved you even though you are unloving, by a God who has poured himself out for his enemy, to that extent you will be able to love with generosity and joy, even the least lovable, even those people who feel farthest from you. So I think that is part of our calling as Christians as well is to let the gospel sink in and push us out in love for others. Um, Instead of closing with a prayer or instead of going to a song of response, I'm gonna invite uh, Mark Carlson up who is our uh, global missions coordinator to lead us in a time of prayer. So Mark, let me hand it over to you as we step off and, and ask you to lead us in prayer.